Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Stuart McLean from Momoyama Gakuin University. Dr. McLean, thank you for coming on Lost in Citations. Many thanks for having me. Now, we've been corresponding the past month or so trying to organize this interview. And you said you've been kind of in the thick of it doing uh, 16-hour days. That sounds pretty tough. And Jeff was saying that you're, you're one of these uh, researchers who, he, I think he said you got your finger in a lot of different pies. So you're doing a lot of different research projects. Uh, how, how's everything going? How many, how many projects are you, are you juggling right now? If asked, I, well, basically, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, At the front of my mind, let's say five mm -hmm. things go background maybe at worst 12 or something wow and you said that you were you kind of just woke up we're recording around two o'clock so what what's your what's your schedule are you just are you working two or three hour i don't know blocks of time and then taking naps or are you do you, are you one of those people that works late at night oh uh, i i woke up today at about seven but uh woke up meaning as in uh, i'm still a bit sleepy <laughs> last night i was working to about 2 a.m um, I don't know. I didn't have classes today, so if I don't have classes, I might work quite late in the evening. Generally, it's easier to get work done once children are in bed, stuff like that. Right. Um, we do. We do have to to mention because I mentioned it on a previous show that your your headshot um, it doesn't really look like it doesn't really fit the part here. And I, I was asked. I think I asked Tim or Jeff if people like to listen. Maybe push pause. I've interviewed two of. Um, Stewart's co-authors and co-researchers, Jeff Stewart and uh, Tim Steckel, and those are good interviews. I think in one of those interviews, I was mentioning that I thought your headshot was uh, made up because you you look more like like an actor or something. Is that is that your real picture? Uh, that's my real picture, yeah. And then your I saw your your, your kid. Not to sound like a stalker, but I, I I follow you on Twitter and I saw the pictures of your kids. They also look like models. So it's a bit of a bit of a good looking family you got there i don't i don't mean to start the show so awkwardly but i, I have to get it out of the way because it is it is public record on previous shows are you told <laughs> are you told that a lot uh i'm told that definitely my son's very attractive yeah anyway that's not really relevant to today to, to, to today's discussion <laughs> the article that we're talking about today is the creation and validation of a listening vocabulary levels test and this was written in or published in 2015 with uh, Brandon Kramer and David uh, Begler. Um, before we get into the paper, it's, it's always interesting to hear people's backgrounds. Uh, as I mentioned before we started recording, I actually don't know anything about your background. Um, so if you don't mind, uh, I'd like to sort of hand the floor over to you and, and tell us like kind of your story. Like what, what were you interested in as a kid and then what did you study in your undergrad and where did that lead you to your master's and and uh and all that and then sort of bring us up to the the the, the time where you started writing this paper okay um i'll start uh secondary school in the uk we okay. start secondary school when you're 11 mm -hmm. and we i think in the first academic year we had a kind of um work experience thing mm -hmm. and um i said i wanted to be a teacher and they, they said, well, it's kind of difficult to do work experience if you're 11 as a teacher. <laughs> Thankfully, my, because maybe most kids go to, well, where I went to school, most kids would go to the paper factory with their dad or something. Um, 
Um, my dad used to work in a paper factory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, but my elementary school said it was okay. Of course, they put me in like the, the youngest year possible. And I really enjoyed it. And basically ever since 11, I knew I'd be a teacher in some form or the other. Hmm. Um, I After secondary school, I went to a sixth form college. It looks like a high school in Japan. Mm-hmm. But it's... It's more like maybe it's more like it feels more like a tandai. You don't wear a uniform. You're very free. If you come to class, great. If you don't, you're just not going to pass. Mm-hmm. I really, I really like that environment, and I studied a lot, made up for what I missed in secondary school. Mm. Uh, and then I thought I was going to be an elementary school teacher, probably related to the work experience I had earlier. Oh. And in when I was in high, what we call high school now, or what I would call sixth form college, I did work experience in a elementary school again. Mm. So I was initially accepted onto a elementary school teacher course at university. Mm-hmm. And so my major would be like early education, and then my minor was geography. I enjoyed geography. And then I quickly realized that I really enjoyed geography or life sciences. And I thought maybe I'd rather teach this, uh, let's say, um, junior high school and high school Hmm. instead of teaching um, younger kids. So I changed my course. And if you, in the UK, basically university is three years, yeah? Hmm. If you want to be an elementary school teacher, you go to university for four years because two and a half half of those years are teaching practice. Hmm. Actually, so like, like in Japan, to get a teaching license, maybe do three weeks teaching practice. If you want to teach elementary school kids in the UK, you do a four-year degree in two and a half years of just teaching practice, mm. and it's really tough. If you want to teach in junior high school or high school generally, like I did, you get your degree, and then you go to um, graduate school, and you do you study education, and you do a basically very intensive one-year teaching practice hmm. so i did that um because i was interested in geography i thought i should see the world I, I i never left the uk until i was 19 i had to go abroad for my um life sciences degree hmm. really enjoyed it i started enjoying or having spanish friends i go to spain many times and i thought okay i'll spend a year in japan maybe a year in cuba and then a year in spain and go back to the uk and continue working as a high school teacher. Hmm. I came to Japan and I stayed. I wanted to get a better job. If I was going to stay here, I needed to. So um, I looked around and Temple seemed perfect. So I did a master's at Temple. Oh, okay. After I got my master's at Temple, I wanted to go back and apologize to every student I ever taught. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? Just um, when you go to Temple and you get a a master's in TESOL at Temple, you really learn how to... Basically, it's a master's in teaching Japanese university students. Mm. It's, it's incredibly practical for that purpose. Mm. Um, that you, you don't... Um, if you do a master's at, let's say, Japanese university or foreign university, you don't take so many classes, but you do... You have to... You have a large kind of dissertation or thesis at the end that you submit. Mm. At Temple, you don't do that. You take maybe 10 modules... At least six of them are quite practical, and at the end you take a comprehensive exam. Hmm. 
So basically after Tempo, I just thought I learned so much and I would have done a much better job teaching if I had taught the people I taught in the past after getting a master's at Temple. Mm. At Temple, I thankfully met uh, Dr. David Begler, who well, he helped me, he taught me how to teach, he helped me with research, he helped me with papers, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, around the same time, I started working part-time at uni. Oh, and I forgot this. Actually, at the same time that I started my master's in, at Temple, I also started a PhD in forensic medicine. But th that was kind of a, uh, I want to say, it happened by chance. Wait, 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 wait. So, <laughs> back up. Whoop, back up a second. Wait, wait. So can you say that? It just kind of blew my mind. Um, what what was that again? You were you were finishing? You had... You had just started your master's and then you started the, the, the PhD in medicine? In, in forensic medicine. So Forensic uh, medicine, okay. Yeah, I should emphasize. So medical doctors are, well, medical doctors save people's lives and they look after people properly. Mm. Um, and if you work in a, a hoigaku or like a forensic medicine department, you have, mm -hmm. you have general, like, like general doctors or, um, what, what I would call a doctor from the UK, someone who helps you. And then you have people with PhDs and you have people like me who are doing research based on chemistry, mm -hmm. basically, and you work towards a PhD. So I was a, a king queuing or like a project researcher. Mm -hmm. and, and the deal was because I had a background in science, maybe because my, my undergraduate was in life sciences, mm -hmm. uh, I would understand what people were writing. I would understand what my colleagues were writing in their papers. And the deal was I would I would go there and work and get paid. Not very much though, but it was it was better than nothing, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, I helped them conduct research. I helped them write their papers because often in Japan, um, lots of scholars will pay. Um, translation companies to translate papers. Right. And they're, and they're being translated by people who are basically very good at English or other languages. Mm -hmm. And they don't have, understandably, they don't have an understanding of every field that they're translating in. And they don't have an understanding that how... Well, when I first started proofreading or helping people write these papers, I thought some of these things were grammatical errors, but it's just the way you write in that field. Mm. It's a very efficient way of writing. So I was originally changing things, and they were telling me off, saying you should change it back. Um, so basically my deal was to go there, never speak Japanese, help them improve their English, help them improve their writing, and until their writing improves sufficiently, um, edit and work on their papers, um, and also to conduct research. And then after a while, my, my boss, very kind man, said, if you, Stuart conduct research yourself and you publish at least three times in impact factor journals you can get a phd through publication mm. and, and the idea of getting a free phd basically um, was very appealing so i did what was required of me and i got a phd through publication that is amazing what what kind of research were you doing i used um so, so basically forensic medicine research is generally about identifying um dead bodies oh so, okay so there's you might do different things you might measure how electricity 
passes through bone and then you can kind of estimate the age. So, so you're, mm. you're trying to narrow down parameters so you can try to match this person with someone on a missing persons list maybe. Mm-hmm. So mm. I used stable isotope analysis. Basically, um, I eat lots of meat. So mm-hmm. if you checked my urine or my soft tissue or even some of my hard tissue, I would be quite heavy in um, nitrogen mm-hmm. because there's lots of because I, my diet's heavy on protein. Mm-hmm. And if you eat lots of carbohydrates, maybe you'd have more carbohydrates. And more importantly, depending on where you live, the type of nitrogen and carbohydrates alter. Mm. Now, in a modern diet, because we eat so much imported food, actually using carbo, um, carbohydrates and nitrogen isn't a good idea. I see. But we don't import, well, we do import some water to a degree, but we don't generally import water over large distances, and we certainly don't import the oxygen we breathe. Mm-hmm. So basically, my research said if you want to use uh, stabilized analysis to identify the origin of unidentified cavities, then it's probably a good idea not to use nitrogen and carbon. It's a better idea to use oxygen and hydrogen. All right, so at this time, you're... So w- w- did you finish the master's before the PhD or did, was it, did you finish them at the same time? Uh, I finished the master's first. At Temple, I took it really slowly because I, I was sometimes working, I think, on three campuses a day. I was working part-time. Okay. So most some people do Temple in a year. I did it in about two and a half years, but I think that really helped me. It allowed me mm. to read so much and it allowed me to take my time and really take things in. The PhD... If you do it by publication as project researcher, you have to work there at least six years. So I carried okay. on working six years. And then when I finished, I got my first kind of full-time contract job. In in that department? In no, the no. forensics department? No, in uh, Kansai University. So at that time, were you thinking you'd, you'd, you'd like to stay in forensics? Or were you happy to get back into the, the Tesla world? I considered it. Um, we had to um, be present during autopsies. Okay. And I quickly realized maybe I didn't want to work when sometimes autopsies are conducted on children. Oh, wow. Jeez. I I, I was more interested in the science side. Like like sometimes we look at blood spatter patterns or we... There were just interesting things like if a body dies and you chuck it in water after or before it dies, the mm. depth of the toxins in your lungs are different. Mm. Or I, I enjoyed the science side or especially the kind of drug testing side. Mm. I didn't enjoy the um, looking at dead people side, so to speak. Wow. So I, re- <laughs> I, I realized it wasn't for me. And I, at the same time I was doing this, I was still working part time and still teaching and doing a master's and trying to publish in uh, TESOL. And my heart was basically there most of the time in the TESOL world. All right. So then you get the job at Kansai and were you able to kind of relax a bit? I mean, just talking to you now, it seems like you you, you still are heavily into working hard. I'm the type of person that I'm going to work hard so I can work less doesn't sound like you're that type of person. It's not either you're the ty- you're the per- type of personality that you enjoy doing a ton of projects and you that makes you happy. 
or or what? Like, because for me, it would be like, okay, I just finished a PhD in forensics. I just finished a PhD in Tesla. I've been working all over the place, you know, d- doing all this stuff. Okay, now I'm at, now now I'm at Kansai. I'm just gonna take a take a breath for a while. Is that is that kind of? I'm guessing that that's not what you did. That's what I would have done. I would have just done nothing for a year. Uh, how, um, my dad used to be a farm laborer when he was very mm-hmm. young, and like on weekends. He would do people's gardens. And as he got older, he couldn't do it as well. So I'd have to go along and help. And he basically mm-hmm. said that um, we say you make hay while the sun rises. So mm-hmm. so it's the idea mm-hmm. that in the UK it rains a lot, yeah? Mm-hmm. So basically, if, this, if the weather's good, you work until the weather gets bad. Mm-hmm. There, there's no clouds or rain in my office or, or my house. So basically, I work until uh, kind of stamina means I can't carry on. So I, basically, I enjoy working. I don't enjoy being bored, or I don't enjoy knowing what not what I should do next. It's it's nice to have something in front of me to work on. I I mean I'm with you to some extent. I like to stay bid, busy and productive, and I sort of have a, a checklist. At the same time, there are times where I get like uh, anxiety, where I feel like it's tipped too far. And I yeah. think, oh, maybe I need to put some barriers in place to protect myself from going too far. Um, do you do you struggle with that as well, where you know, you 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 give yourself some boundaries? Recently, I thought I'm spread a bit too thin, so I I turned down an editorship recently. Mm-hmm. So it's at the, at the moment is especially busy. I, I thought when I finished the the second PhD, life might get a bit easier. But I took on too much at that stage, maybe. Um, but now I'm trying to concentrate on the things that I, I'd rather do than take on new things. You know, but that's it, a... Seems, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just say, it seems fair as well, because if I spread myself too thin, I just can't do as much as well. So I'm trying to sort out the projects I have now and then be cautious when I take on new things. That doesn't mean I want people to stop contacting me and asking me, but I'm trying to reduce the amount that I say yes to. See, that's a, that's an interesting conversation, I think, because there's someone that I know, and maybe this applies to lots of different people. It sounds like it definitely applied to you, where you work so hard for so long, and then you get the PhD, but like your life has been you know, it's been your life, like the, the, the working so hard. That's maybe one thing. The other thing is how often you just say yes to more work. Like this person that I know, he's in charge of a department. Um, he's definitely a hard worker. But every time I talk to him, it's like he's gotten busier and busier and busier. And I say, why? He's like, oh, I just, I was asked to be on this committee. And I said, yes. And I was asked to do this. And I said, yes. So it's like, <laughs> why, I, I kind of wonder why people don't say no more. Uh, because they just know that their time is just it's, it's going to just eat up more and more and more of their time. If it's if it's not a monetary thing, you know, like why why the extra committees? Is it just an is it an ego thing? Like is it like oh well, I guess I could do this job well and I should do this? Or I'm I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious about that because I've never had that problem of saying yes too much. I could easily think no, this is going to be too much. In in my case for research, it's partly. Um... I, I asked. I'm gonna. I, I'm gonna start teaching some PhD classes soon, which is mm-hmm. great fun. Um, and I, I asked someone to come and be a guest speaker, and they they were just so honoured and so thankful that they they said, 
and and it's like it's like I'm doing them the favor, but really they're doing me the favor. And it's kind of like that. If you um, if somebody asks me to join the project, I, I feel thankful, and I'm really I don't really want to enjoy the, I really want to join the project, and it's kind of you feel privileged to be asked. The turning down that offer is really tough, but uh, now I'd like to give more to the projects. So I'm trying not to say yes too often, and, I, and I'm trying to say yes to things where I'm I'm more useful than I than saying yes to things where I might be less useful. It's, right. It's I mean, of, you feel you feel honoured to be asked, basically. I mean, do you have a goal at some point? Like I know that you said you know, you know what what make hay while the the sun's out. I mean, is there a goal where you'd like to cut back at some point? And do less because just hearing you say 16 hours a day it's like it, to me you're already established i i don't i haven't talked to you before but I'm, I'm assuming you're you're tenured or you have option to be tenured um where does the yeah it's like at a certain point you i don't know what the motivation would be to do that if you're already established in your field at present there are there are practices in our field which i think i think personally are illogical and i think the evidence suggests that it's illogical and it can be improved upon. And my my motivation now is to deal with those those things that I think will improve research and therefore also help teachers. Okay. And, and, and I, I see things done in the research world by famous people then they get replicated by people who are not immediately in that field. And therefore, basically, they see someone famous doing it, so they assume it's correct. And then they do it as teachers, and their students fall through these gaps in the methodology. And it it could simply quite – I think it could quite simply be changed in a better way. All right. Well, that's a great answer. So your motivation is internal for your own curiosity, for your own research interests. That's a good reason for motivation. All right. You, you passed my 16-hour-a-day uh, test. Good job. Congratulations. <laughs> It's not external. You, you don't get paid anymore for doing this or not. Right, right. Um, all right, well, let's, let's, all right, that leads us to the paper. And then just to kind of skip ahead in the story a little bit, um, as Stuart told me before we recorded, we're going to talk about this paper, the creation and validation of a listening vocabulary levels test. But actually, um, after this paper is when Stuart started his second PhD. So we're going to, we're going to talk about this paper, but then we're going to move into the motivations to, um, start your PhD. And as you said before, um, the thing you said you wanted to communicate in this interview was the idea that, you know, researchers of vocabulary want to help people. Um, and then there's these advanced algorithms and then sometimes people fall through the cracks. All right, so this paper, The Creation and Validation of a Listening Vocabulary Levels Test, was published in Language Teaching Research in 2015 with co-authors Brandon Kramer, who uh, at that time was teaching at the place you're teaching now, Momoyama yep. Gakuen University, and as you mentioned in your background, David Begler, which was, I guess, your PhD, or sorry, your master's advisors at Temple Masters. He taught many of the classes I took, yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, Momoya, Momoyama Gakuen and Kansai, is, is that all in the Osaka era, area? Yeah, they're both in Osaka Prefecture. I see. Okay. So you, 
Now, Temple, that's in Tokyo? Uh, t- Temple has a Tokyo campus and an Osaka campus. Okay, so you, you've, you've essentially been sort of an Osaka resident for your, your stay here in Japan? That's correct, yeah. Okay, cool. That's a great area. Um, all right, so this, this paper, uh, what, what was the motivation for writing it? Um, I mean, you, you write about it in the paper. I guess the, the answer to the question is this gap, right? Can you talk a little bit about why you noticed this gap and why you felt it was necessary to create this type of test? Yep. Um, so at Temple University, uh, I, I'm a big fan of Temple. Uh, Temple University is great in that um, we have kind of regular teachers who work there who are really good. And Temple basically fly in or invite some of the best or, or the leading researchers in their respective fields to come and talk, mm-hmm. sometimes for weekend seminars and sometimes they teach 14-week classes. And if you're uh, if you graduate from the masters, you can attend all of the weekend seminars for free. Or mm. and if you're not a graduate, you can pay a small um, I think it's about eight thousand yen to stay for the whole weekend. Or the first three hours of the weekend seminar are open to the public. And we were really lucky that we had Kazia Saito. Uh, he's probably one of the most published if not the most published person in our field in, let's say, the last five years. He specializes on kind of second language speech and mm. lots of stuff on pronunciation. And he, I think it was on the second day, so it's a smaller group. It's the non-public part of the weekend seminar. And he was talking about um, research that looked at the correlation between vocabulary knowledge and listening. Mm. And basically all the research that was interested in vocabulary vocabulary knowledge and listening used a vocabulary test that was read now this was strange to me and it was strange to Saito and he pointed this out in the introduction of these papers they talk about how listening is not reading and they talk about why listening isn't reading and they talk about how vocabulary when listening is different to reading and then you go to the methodology and they measure vocabulary using a a test which is not listened to but is read Mm. Um, so Saito said this is a, a good idea for if anyone wants to do a master's or a PhD or maybe do some research. So I was sitting there next to Brandon Kramer, who goes to almost all of the weekend seminars. And um, we were friends and we were working together on other stuff. And we said, let's do it. So we said, let's do it on March 2nd. And language teaching research was having a special edition on vocabulary edited by Avril Coxhead. And I think the deadline for that was the 3rd of May. So in two months, basically, we uh, edited, we we took items just from the VST, Mm -hmm. from the vocabulary science test. Um, We edited some items, we recorded the items, we collected data, um, we rationalized the data, we Importantly, instead of as well as just doing a kind of technical rash analysis, we also tried to we interviewed students after, and we tried to what well, estimate or measure the degree to which their responses on the multiple choice test actually represented the knowledge they had, mm-hmm. because multiple choice does have many issues that I'll come on to later. One of one of which is just guessing or just measuring a kind of lower level of knowledge than that necessary when listening. And we sent it off. We were working part-time at the time, so we were really busy. Um, 
there were many late nights involved there. We would we were we were trying to find somewhere to record it that didn't cost much money, so we ended up just renting a um, a studio near my house. And Brandon brought down some decent equipment. I think we recorded it at like 1 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> it was um it was very a very intense period, and we managed to submit it just before the deadline, if not slightly after. Wow. That's that seems insane to me. That <laughs> seems like it's impo- impossible. <laughs> uh, it came back now. It was it was definitely. We were just starting out. Like this is the first impact factor paper I published, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, I know there was certainly a rush of adrenaline trying to work on a new project that we thought might make a difference. Okay, so I don't want to spend too much time on this paper um, because, again, as we're going to get into in the PhD, you 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 kind of found some weaknesses in the paper, but. Just a couple questions. Um, in the test itself, you talked about some benefits. And you said, number one, the difficulty of each distractor can be manipulated. Can you just explain what that means? What is a distractor? A distractor is like uh, basically a incorrect option on a multiple choice test. Ah, okay. Oh, that's interesting. Never thought about that before. And then another section is you, you, you kind of talk about carelessness and guessing. And this was a theme also in the interviews with Jeff and Tim, uh, how you, know, you, you all are you know, a big proponent of, of the meaning recall exams and you know, the weaknesses of multiple choice. Uh, and then the argument for multiple choice, it's, it's, it's easier to utilize in a large-scale test at a large-scale school. And then that brings us back eventually, hopefully we're going to talk about it maybe at the end of the interview, your vocabularyleveltest.org, which is going to fill that gap. Which is So all these sort of stories um, sort of correlate in some ways. All right, so, all right, so the feedback from the paper, um, how, how, how was it received in your field? At that time, were you heavily involved in like the, the JALT vocab SIG? Uh, I think I was just starting out. Um, well, one one interesting thing you just said, and I just noted it down, and and it's very true. You said the reason we use multiple choice tests is because they're easier, right? And and there's nothing there about accuracy or construct validity or reliability. It's just they're easier. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll come back later. Um, how was the paper taken by the field? Um, I think it's been cited 138 times. Um, as quite quite well known established people use it in their research. There's a Viet a Vietnamese version of the test, but basically Vietnamese means because um, it's a listening test, you don't want the distractors in L2 English because then okay. you're mixing constructs. We want to measure students or learners' ability to listen in the L2, not read in the L2. So there's a Vietnamese version of the test where the distractors are in Vietnamese. The version of the test we made, the distractors are in Japanese. Um, there's a, a Chinese version of the test was used in a paper that was published in Language Learning. Um, people don't touch listening or they don't touch listening that much because it's difficult. So, And technology made it difficult in the past. So the test is widely used because there's there's kind of one other test that was existing at the time, but it had it had bigger issues than the issues in our test. So mm. lots of people started using our test in research and uh, and PhDs and stuff like that. All right, and then 
after this paper, you started on your second PhD. What, can you talk about the timeline of that? So, what happened? Uh, I, Kandai was really good to me. So I applied for a full-time contract position at Kandai at the same time that I applied to them to do a PhD. Ah, oh, that was it. I, I went to the interview at Kandai mm-hmm. for the contract position, and I realized how nice and approachable and knowledgeable the staff were there. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, of course, the, the natural option for me was to do a PhD at Temple. Mm-hmm. Um, Temple accepted me. Um, but I had a sneaking suspicion that if I went to Kandai, where I realized that the teachers were good and the education quality was high, I might get a full scholarship. Oh, okay. And it turned out I got a full scholarship. Wow. So um, I I certainly wasn't very wealthy back then. My kids were in kind of um, international preschool, or my son was in international preschool, and I calculated that, from my contract salary, if I kept my son in the school I wanted to, and I paid for tuition at Temple, I think something like two-thirds of my disposable income would go on tuition fees. Mm. So free at Kandai was very um, attractive. Um, There was the issue, though, that I was meant to be working there as well. (laughs) Right. They basically had a number of extra meetings for me, unfortunately, and they came back and they said, okay, we can take you as a student and as a teacher at the same time. And I was very lucky and very, I'm very thankful for it. And they said, like, the only thing you have to do is we're allowed to use your photo to advertise our English department. Is that what they said? (laughs) What's that? Sorry, I missed that. What did you say? No one took my photo while while I was at Panda. <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right, so the, so they took you on as a contract worker full time, essentially, right? And then as a as a PhD candidate, and then so before they accepted you as a PhD candidate, did you have a proposal all set and ready uh, to go? This is a strange story. It was a strange story, but it also I had a had a nice effect on me. Um, I was accepted by Norbert Smith to do a PhD in Nottingham. Wow. That's and, um, huge. And I really wanted to go, and Norbert helped me get funding. Norbert's very good like that. Most of his students get full funding, I believe. Um, the strange thing was um, if I wanted to return to the UK with my family, I had to have a salary of a certain amount to get them a visa. So, so I'm, I'm British, yeah, and I have a British passport. Mm-hmm. I was born in uh, Britain, and I grew up there until I left when I was about 22. Mm-hmm. But um, for me to go back, I needed a salary. Now, if you weren't British and you went there to study, you didn't need a salary. And basically, I couldn't study in the UK because I was British. Hmm. That's, that's very odd. Yes, very, very odd. But... Um, during that time, me and Norbert were talking about um, what what I would do if I studied under him, mm-hmm. and um, what it, it provided a nice balance because I I like Rash and I like IRT and they are incredibly valuable, but 
I also like what Norbert brings to research. He wants to know instead of extrapolate or guess. He wants to actually go in and check. He wants mm -hmm. to know if a yes on this item indicates that a student can use that knowledge when reading or listening. Mm -hmm. So what I learned from Norbert influenced me greatly in that way. Hmm. And then what I learned from maybe David Begler influenced me statistically with IRT and RASH. Hmm. And, and since then, Jeff Stewart has helped me greatly with IRT and RASH. All right. So the, the PhD, you said a lot of the PhD was based on this paper that we're talking about today, the creation and validation of a listening vocabulary levels test. Yep. All right. So how did that, how did that all come about? It, um, can you can you share with, with the listeners? You, you you sort of gave me a preview um, that your PhD a lot of it was based on weaknesses that you you found in the paper. Yeah. Um, so I'll start with it. the title of the paper is the creation and validation of a listening vocabulary level test. First thing I I should do and I I hate now but um, we should have put our validation because basically if you validate something you validate the use of a test at a single time with a single group of students. And, and there's this idea now in our field that you validate something and it can be used at any, at anywhere with, for any purpose, etc. Validation is really specific to a purpose, a target population, etc., etc. Like tests don't have validity and data doesn't have validity. The only thing that has validity are the inferences you make from data. Mm. So really, I wanted to have a ridiculously long title like... Um, basically a validation of the use of the test in a single setting, blah, blah, blah. But of course, that's not going to happen. It's, you can't have a really long title like that. Right. The listening vocabulary levels test is a multiple choice test based on the word family. And it uses 24 items to represent uh, a thousand words. Right. And people might find that strange, me saying that, because since then, most of my research has been saying don't use the word family for expanding circle or many EFL learners or even some ESL learners. Multiple choice tests do not measure the type of vocabulary knowledge necessary when reading or listening as well as meaning recall. And other research I've done has basically said if you want to, of course, we can't give a thousand items to, a, to students, not usually. Right. So we sample from those thousand items. Now, how big a sample is enough? And that, that's, uh, that was another question I addressed in my uh, PhD research. So, so basically, I did this. I did other um, vocabulary research. Like I marked, it was painful, but it, uh, it taught me a lot. I marked over a thousand vocabulary size tests by hand. Wow. And I just realized we, we aren't measuring what we're measuring. And by do, if you just took that data and you put it into a, if you just downloaded that data and you chucked it into rash, the, the, the rash statistics were fine. The, the, the data looked really good, but you're, I'm marking these by hand and you can see kids kind of writing their names in the, um, in the, in the kind of bubble sheets or, or <laughs> as a sign, you got, you got, um, it's just going down in bits. The, 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 the kids are clearly just messing about, but you mm -hmm. put that data into rash or something and Rash is okay with it. The reliability is still good. If you go really deep, which most papers don't, you could find the students which are messing about. 
that, that's very rare in published data. So I, I saw that there were issues with vocabulary with um, multiple choice tests for those reasons. Can you share the story you told me in the before we started recording about how you were giving presentations to high school teachers and, and their feedback on some of the, the research you were talking about? Yeah, so, so I, I should explain what I tried to do in my PhD. And basically, my PhD looked at um, first word counting units. So generally, the field has used the word family since 1993, Bauer Nation, 1993. And the word family makes the assumption that if you know the word use, you also know the inflectional forms using and used, and you also know the derivational forms to level six of Bauer Nation. And they include things like useful and usable and usage and useless and usefulness, etc. Mm -hmm. And I published a paper in Applied Linguistics in 2018. And basically, um, it, I think it more directly addressed the question than past papers. But some of those past papers that we cited had a different goal. So it was okay that they weren't directly testing this. And basically, I would give students um, a short sentence like the computer is usable and ask mm -hmm. them to translate usable, which is underlined. And then I would also, after they do the derivational form, I'd ask them to do the base word form use. And if, if a student knows use, but they don't know usable, you can infer that the student doesn't have, well, number one, they can't comprehend usable. And number two, they don't have a kind of command of the abul affix. Mm. Therefore, the word family is inappropriate for that learner. Mm. And I, I think the sample size was about 278. And basically, as, is, as, as has been shown by most other research, almost all other research on this topic, um, EFL learners, of course, EFL is kind of a broad, um, a very broad category. So let's say expanding so-called EFL learners, just to be safe, hedge a bit. Mm -hmm. They don't have command of the derivational forms making up the word family. And part of my old job was I would present sometimes at high school teachers, and I would say, yeah, Japanese university students don't have a command of derivational forms. <clears throat> and the high school teachers would go, um, of course they don't. You could have asked us that. We would have told you a long time ago. Um, you get paid how much to have a nice air-conditioned office, teach not many classes, and you're doing research which is totally obvious to anyone who's spoken to a Japanese EFL. Why, Gyakuni, I mean, on the other hand, why would any researcher think that the word family was appropriate for Japanese EFL learners? And I would get reactions like that. But uh, until recently, and even, even now, it's very common to use the word family with Japanese EFL learners. Now, there are some learners for which it's appropriate, but um, if you consider the different purposes for these tests or lexical profiling tools, overestimation of knowledge is a bigger issue than underestimation of knowledge. That makes so sense. It's generally because most of my research is concerned with matching learners with a lexically appropriate material. So you have that 98% figure. Yeah? If learners know 98% of the tokens within the text, the lexical load of the text is unlikely to inhibit comprehension. It doesn't guarantee it. Too often, that's a guarantee it's not. So if you're measuring learners' lexical ability and then ma matching them with lexically appropriate materials, if you overestimate their knowledge of the tokens, 
the, the running words within a text. That 98% will drop down to 95, or it might drop down to 92. And as, as has been shown by research, if you drop coverage by 1%, you lose 3% comprehension. Mm. So it's very sensitive. And if and I, I'm sure that the flemma or the lemma, that those are smaller, smaller word counting units, they just group the base word form and inflectional forms. I'm sure that they underestimate knowledge. I'm sure that students in Japan know ER derivational forms or LY der derivational forms, usually, most mm. of the time. But if you underestimate students' knowledge, guess what? The, the, the material you match them with is really, really comprehensible. <laughs> it's not mm -hmm. a negative thing. And there's no negative, really, from under comprehension, uh, underestimation. But if you overestimate knowledge, what, what was meant to be meaning-focused input, 98% coverage, is no longer meaning-focused input. And, and if, we, if we take the four strands by nation seriously, we want 25% of what they're doing to be based on meaning-focused input. So you, don't, so you don't want to overestimate knowledge. Now, vocabulary is not my research um, field, so I'm, I apologize if this is a dumb question. I guess it's two questions. One, so if we're going back to the 2015 paper, you're introducing this oral vocabulary knowledge measure, right? Yeah. Did, you, did and then, and this also relates to your presentations to the high school teachers. Did was there an argument that okay, this is two different things, or did the te like the high school teachers say, oh yeah, like we need to measure their listening ability, and listening ability is related to vocabulary knowledge? I'm just kind of curious if someone was saying, oh, this isn't a vocabulary test, this is a listening test. And like, um, how was there any sort of debate about that? And how what's your what was your response to it? Um, I, I never presented on that paper to high school teachers. Um, generally, people see this as a, a vocabulary, a listening vocabulary test. Oh, sorry, um, I made a mistake. It's a yeah, that's correct. It's a listening vocabulary test. Um, it, it's not there to measure listening ability. It's just it's just there to measure students' ability to comprehend the spoken form of words and you can use that information to then match them with lexically appropriate materials so if someone takes your listening vocabulary test and then takes another reading vocabulary test they should correlate uh, this is an issue we have in our field and you see it with um i see it as a reviewer people uh people use methodology which isn't the best methodology in the world and their argument is it still correlates and mm -hmm. but the problem is finding something that doesn't correlate with vocabulary would be would be something you put in a paper because it'd be so so rare and so unheard of everything correlates with vocabulary you could randomly select any words from a list and just ask students to translate them into the l1 mm -hmm. you mark it and it's going to correlate with with all the four language skills. Finding something that doesn't correlate with vocabulary would be big would be big news. No, I mean the actual score on the test. Like feasibly, if someone took a reading vocabulary test and took your listening vocabulary test, they would get the same score. They won't get the same score, and but I'm pretty sure they will correlate significantly. But at the same time, if you compare those scores, they also research suggests that they differ significantly. And again, th this is where insight from 
listening to Norbert is important. And I just think it's logical. And I'm sure high school teachers will think this is logical. Most Japanese EFL learners, and it seems that it's also the case for Greek learners, their, their ability to, well, their scores on written receptive vocabulary tests are significantly higher than spoken receptive vocabulary tests. And mm. it makes sense. You're listening to, like, like listening and like actual real world listening. If you listen to a vocabulary test, you get just one chance, or you might get two, mm. and it's gone. If it's a reading test, you spend much longer looking at the form. Um, Brandon Kramer and I did some research and we compared scores on because we have the, the listening vocabulary levels test. We have a written version. It's exactly the same, just you read the um, item stem, the question, instead of the instead of listening to it. Yeah. And we found a significant difference in the scores. And what, what we found interesting, we found that the, the more proficient the learners, the bigger the difference. And this really surprised us. So oh. the, the most proficient learners in our group were they went to a national university. They studied. They majored in English. They all spent a year in a uh, in like a native English speaking country taking credit bearing classes. So they're, they're really good. You're talking TOEIC like 950 plus or something. Wow. And um, we 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 like or we try to do mixed methods research where possible and maybe one idea within mixed methods research i'm definitely not the best mixed methods researcher in the world but the idea is that maybe the data tells you the story and the and the qualitative bit explains the story so we just couldn't understand why these very highly proficient learners had a bigger difference on their scores than the lower proficiency between their ability to read vocabulary and listen to vocabulary. So we mm. showed it to the learners, and they said, yeah, it's simple. Um, we're good at English. They didn't say it that clearly, but they said, basically, we're good at English. We've spent longer in a reading-dominant system. So every day they spend in their reading-dominant system, their reading ability slightly detaches from their listening ability. Mm. And the students who are not very proficient they haven't spent as long and they haven't engaged as much in this reading dominant system. So their reading ability hasn't disengaged, that their reading ability hasn't disengaged from their listening vocabulary ability as much. Wow. That's very interesting. But, but at the same time, the correlation between listening vocabulary and reading vocabulary is going to be really good every time. But it, mm. imagine basically correlations just mean you have two lines which are rather parallel. Those two mm. lines could be separated by a million miles, but they're still <laughs> highly. One, two, three, four, and five correlate perfectly with one million and one, one million and two, one million and three, one million and four, one million and five. Mm -hmm. So correlations tell us a lot, but it should only be one part. Just if, if you're talking about this is something that I, I find a bit strange at the moment. Um in the best journals in our field, the most commonly used test to measure students' ability to um, students' lexical listening ability or vocabulary listening ability, you don't listen to the test. You read it. Huh. That doesn't seem right. They are, and I'm sure if you said that to high school teachers, they would say, of course, that's not right. Um, but... 
so I, I'm interested in that at the moment and other people are interested in that, but I'm sure the correlation between a listening vocabulary test and a, what we, we, we've done it, the correlation is really, really strong, but it doesn't mean you're going to get the same scores. And it doesn't mean that if you give a reading vocabulary test, you're actually measuring the type of knowledge that can be used when listening. All right. Well, let's 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 talk a little bit about this vocablevelTest.org um, because this came up in the two interviews uh, with Jeff and Tim. If you haven't listened to those, please push pause. If there was a few items that were a little bit difficult to understand, they were explained more thoroughly in the the Tim and Jeff interview. So I didn't feel the need to to go over those items again. Um, but one of the things we talked about with Tim and Jeff again, and you mentioned it in this interview as well, that you know multiple choice tests are easier. They're, they're just easier to conduct on a large scale, but that doesn't mean that they're better. And, and all of you agree that the meaning recall tests are better, but then the problem is like, how can we, how can we do this? How can we, uh, you know, upscale it or whatever. Um, and then your response to the field is this vocab level test.org. So can you talk a little bit about that test and, and if people want to utilize it at their school, how, how can they do that? Okay. Um, I just need to back up a little. So sure. We, I, I talked about the word family bit. Mm-hmm. Um, one part of my PhD. The other part looked at multiple choice tests and meaning recall tests. Mm-hmm. And um, it led to the paper with Jeffrey Stewart and Aaron Batty in language testing. And um, basically, th- there's an issue, and this is where it leads to confusion and maybe it leads to people thinking that we're trying to say more than we're trying to say. Unfortunately, detail is really important. And accuracy is really important. But the good thing is they're both free. They just take a bit of time. So I, I try very hard now to avoid the term better. And instead, it's it's maybe better for a given purpose. So mm-hmm. basically, we measure vocabulary in the hope of measuring the type of vocabulary that can be employed or used when reading. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if you gave a teacher or a student or even a researcher, and and as we as we demonstrated in our response to uh, Dr. Stuart Webb, the, the the people who made these vocabulary tests also state that they're trying to measure the vocabulary, the type of vocabulary knowledge that can be employed when reading. But basically, if you take a piece of paper and you read the vocabulary items, the vocabulary questions, implicitly, you're giving the message and the designers of this test have confirmed in text that you're trying to measure the type of vocabulary knowledge for necessary for reading. So basically, um, lots of research now, uh, some meta-analysis by Zhang and Zhang, work by myself and Aaron Batty, Aaron, ba- uh, Aaron Batty and Jeff Stewart. We basically found that uh, meaning recall tests measure the type of vocabulary knowledge that can be employed when reading better than a multiple choice test. And it's it's not really a shock. So if, if I'm reading in Japanese and I find something I can't read very well, four magic options don't pop up on the screen for me <laughs> to select. It's, it's, it's called construct validity. And it's something that I fear too often our field has forgotten. And they just go, well, the scores correlate, so it's okay. Mm. But it's not okay because what happens is, if you're trying to match student, if we care about the four strands again and we take it seriously and we want a balanced curriculum, if you use a multiple choice test to measure students' lexical ability and you want to match them with materials appropriate for me for meaning-focused input, you shouldn't overestimate their ability. 
Um, so that was kind of the second study of the PhD. And the third study looked at sampling. So when I was a student at um, Temple, David Begler's what he's very keen on trying to improve research methodology. So he'll highlight errors. But one very valuable thing he taught me is that if you're going to criticize, you better suggest another way. You better mm. suggest a way to make things better. I like that. So, and, and I also I also like this idea that the critics are the true optimists because they can see something better. Hmm. So that's kind of what vocabulary.org is. So instead of just pointing out the errors and suggesting possible ways forwards in a in a paper, uh, I spent too many years of my life now trying to make a decent test or showing other people how they can make a test more easily in the future. Um, basically. It's a meaning recall test, and we have listening and reading versions. Um, on the listening version, um, there's no text because it's a, a listening test. And basically, on the reading test, you might read something that, look, that looks like it's a big school, and school is underlined, and Japanese learners would type in gakko. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a really simple example, but if you're thinking about a word like use, um, there's many different ways to say use. You, you could, in Japanese, you could say tsukao or shiho, shio, suru. And there are many, many other different ways. So we have an answer bank, which has oh, taken right. a very long time to create. And basically, I paid, I, I got some grants from the Japanese government, and I didn't buy a computer or travel around the world going to conferences. I basically just paid a team of up to 15. Uh, kind of research assistants, and they were copying and pasting from online dictionaries. They were looking at, um, well, first of all, we just copied and pasted from online dictionaries. And we wrote, I think you can make tests from over 7,000 items on the site now. Wow. But then, then we started examining incorrect responses. And you would think nouns are really easy to build an answer bank for. Mm -hmm. So like book, if it, if the target word's book, basically a Japanese learner is going to write hon, yeah? Mm -hmm. They do, but sometimes they write hon o. So they, in Japanese, you have the w-o or the o to mm. indicate that it's a noun. So we found that students were doing this. So what the test now does to make the answer bank better is imagine there's two answer banks. There's a master answer bank which is really, really extensive, I believe. I, I did some research on it recently. And compared to human markers, 98% of the responses from the automatically marked data were the same as a human marker. And then when you do this kind of research, you need to have at least have two human markers. And then the, with, if you compare the answer bank to the second human marker, it was like 97.8%. Well, interestingly, though, the, the, the internal consistency, sometimes referred to reliability of the automatically marked data was better because, hmm. of course, humans sometimes vary or humans make inputting mistakes when they're keying if they're if they're saying if this is correct or incorrect. Of course, automatically marked data doesn't do that. Um, so imagine we have this master database, which seems to be, let's say, we'll say 98 percent accurate. 
But then if you use the test, it's all free. We don't we don't want to collect your data. So you log in with Google and okay, Google's got your data anyway, let's say. You log in and when you finish taking the test, you can go to a kind of results page. And the results page will say, at present, these are marked as correct, these are marked as incorrect. Hmm. If the teacher wants to really check, if, if 98% accuracy is not enough, they can go in and they can override what the answer bank says. And that, that overriven data goes into a kind of a second database, which is assigned only to that teacher. Hmm. And then what happens is, as an as an admin user, as a as a member of the administrator, as an administrator of the site, every time a teacher overrides the answer bank, it gets listed on a download that I can pull up, and I with one click at a button, or well, I I don't do it because I'm not a Jap native Japanese speaker, but native Japanese speakers who are employed, they they pull up all these examples where teachers have overridden the database, and with one click that answer is then added to the database. Nice. Hmm. So, so it's, it's, it's almost like AI you're building this. Uh, well, it's, it's, let's say one part of the AI is humans and. <laughs> right, but, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I guess, I guess that's not the best term. It's, it's more like this, this system is, is, um, is growing as people use it. Yeah, it's growing, but uh, importantly, I think the biggest drawback or the biggest inhibiting factor to people using an auto automatically marked data is that they can't see what's happening. So mm. we've now made it simple and easy to see what is happening. And if a student, if a teacher or a researcher or a user or someone who's made a test on the site wants to override the database with one click, they can, and they don't have to do it per response. If, if 24 students have written hon or, and the teacher correctly thinks that should be marked as correct, all 24 of those responses will be marked as correct instantly. Wow. So you don't, you, you don't check every single response individually, you just check every response type if you want to, if 98% accuracy isn't, isn't good enough for you. So I would argue that even if our answer bank is only 98% accurate, that 2% inaccuracy is less than the inaccuracy you get from a multiple choice test. Well, that's great. How are you finding a lot of people are using it? Is it kind of taking off in popularity? For, for the written receptive meaning recall test, the reading, not the listening version, mm -hmm. there are, we have over half a million responses. Wow. Well done. So that must make you happy. Downloading the data takes close to something like half an hour now. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I've taken up too much of your time. Again, the paper is the creation and validation of a listening vocabulary levels test. Thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations, Dr. McLean. Many thanks for having me. Uh, I hope people listen to this and kind of follow ups on the papers that were referred to. The listening vocabulary levels test is maybe the best listening test out there at the moment, but... I really think people can make a better test. And, and if people do that, I, I very much welcome it. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration.
For more information, go to lostincitations.com, where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five-minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.